0: open your Bibles to John chapter 6, Gospel according to John chapter 6. This morning we'll be looking at verses 16 through 21. John chapter 6 beginning in verse 16. Give ear now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, Coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Thus far as the reading of God's word, may He write its eternal truths on our hearts. We see here the disciples of Jesus are going through a storm, and it's, it's ironic because this is immediately after such a great high point of their ministry, and that's really the way life in a fallen world works. Uh, there are many highs, there are many lows, there are many peaks, and there are many valleys, and that is true for most people, but it is especially true for the Christian. And the reason it's especially true for the Christian is because we are being conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, whose own life is marked by peaks and valleys, highs and lows, or to use uh, the technical theological term, we would say uh, humiliation and exaltation. I want to just... Spend a moment on this paradigm for y'all, real quick. Would somebody please read for us Westminster Shorter Catechism number 27? If you've got um, one of the youth Bibles, it's the, the last document, so if you flip all the way to the back and then just look for question 27. And it asks the question, Wherein consisteth Christ's humiliation? You got it there, Will? Are you in the shorter? The shorter is the last one in there, number twenty-seven. There 20 All, right, got it. All right, Mr. Spell, number twenty-seven, wherein consisteth Christ's humiliation? Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born, and that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, and the cursed death of the cross, in being buried and continuing under the power of death at that time. <clears throat> Thank you very much, Mr. Spell. So what the Catechism doesn't, <coughs> doesn't mention there, it's not leaving it out, it's not skipping, it's just that's not the focus, is right. Christ had been from eternity past true and eternal God and, and was, was, was enjoying all glory, laud, and honor as was his due in eternity past. And then at a specific time, in the fullness of time, he entered into creation and, and entered into an it in a state of humiliation, In his being born, and is undergoing all the miseries of this life, and suffering under even the power of death for a time. Uh, but then, Christ's, Christ's life does not just go from exaltation to humiliation, it goes back up to exaltation, right? Christ's exaltation, this is Shorter Catechism 28, consists in his being raised from the dead on the third day, and... It, What's the, what's the rest of it? Somebody, uh, Shorter Catechism 28, it's on the same page as 27, if you found that earlier. In ascending up into heaven, and sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and in coming to judge the Lord at the last day. Yeah, so his, his, his life has great highs and great lows, and, and we are being conformed to that paradigm. And this isn't just something that the Shorter Catechism teaches us. It's something that summarizes what the Bible would teach us. Paul writes of this in the letter to the Philippians. In Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. So he was in the form of God, at a a peak, as it were, emptied himself, goes into a valley. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient at the point of death, even the death of the cross. And then it it picks back up now, back now up to a a high, a, a peak. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we see these are highs and lows, peaks and valleys, good times and bad times that are for the Son of God to endure. And that for those of us that are in Christ and being conformed to his image, therefore it is right that we expect likewise to go through highs and lows living the Christian life. But there will never be a season, while there will be seasons of highs and lows, goods and bads, there will never be a season where Jesus is not with you, and there will never be a season where he is not enough for you, And there will never be a season that God is not working in that season to make you more like your Savior. And this paradigm is very helpful for understanding the whole of the Christian life, but it's also particularly helpful for understanding what's going on at this point in John's gospel. Uh, We've seen uh, up to this point Jesus's ministry. We saw the calling of the first disciples in chapter one, and then we saw His first sign, the turning of water into wine and the cleansing of the temple in chapter 2. And we see that even Jewish leaders who are publicly his enemies, like Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees, would come to him by night to ask questions and to gain knowledge from him in chapter 3. And then in chapter 4, we see his ministry is spreading to other lands like that of the Samaritans. And in chapter 5, we have the healing of the man by the pool. Then we have his first confrontation with the Jewish leaders also in chapter 5. Why was there a confrontation with them over the healing of this man? Does anybody remember? There are two reasons. Mr. Johnson? On Sunday? Or was, Friday, Saturday, Saturday? Yeah, it's on the, it was on the Saturday. Sabbath, yep. And then the other one is because this, this teaching of his was making himself equal with God. And, and I, I bring all of that to, to point out that his, his ministry has been going up up, 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 you know, even, even, the, even the big public pushback is thwarted, uh, and, and then the, the high point to this point is what you all looked at with uh, Dr. Van Doot Award just uh, two weeks ago, does anybody remember what that was? I'll give you a hint, if you're in John chapter 6, it was the passage before the one I just read. Yes, Miss Mobley. The feeding of the five thousand. The feeding of the five thousand, and so there's this there's this great high point of his ministry where his 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 his, his uh, followers are growing and growing, and they're being nourished and satisfied. And yet, at the end of John chapter six, this this whole episode, because really the feeding of the five thousand is is essentially compared to where our passage is. It's yesterday, and then he's going. We have our passage, which is the overnight between the two. And then we have this great teaching section he gives us in John chapter 6. So this is a span of 24 hours. It starts with 5,000 people. And it ends this way. John chapter 6, verse uh, 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And so Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? He started the day with (laughs) 5,000 And he ended with probably a little bit more than 12, but not much. And so what we're going to see today is this, this in-between time. And he's preparing his disciples uh, how, to, how to cope with the lows having gone through the highs. And we're going to look at several things uh, in this passage today. The first is that Jesus' disciples, his true disciples, what marks them out from those who left, is that they seek to be obedient and we'll we'll develop that in just a moment. But for right now, let's set the context a little bit more, since <clears throat> we've been off for a couple of weeks. And the passage ended last time um, with with the crowds perceiving uh, that he should be king, and they're making they're making messianic connections. They're making connections to passages like Psalm seventy-two that speaks that there would be abundance of grain on the tops of the mountains. And that it it would be, the fruit would be like Lebanon and the people would blossom when the coming king that God had foretold would come. And they're saying, "There's, there's food everywhere. Everyone's blossoming. Everyone's prospering. This must be him. And so they go to take him by force and make him king. They're right in the connection they're making. They're wrong in the kind of king they understand him to be. And so Jesus withdraws from them. And we read in Mark's gospel that tells a parallel account of the same event, that as Jesus withdraws from the crowds, he tells his disciples to go down to the boat and head to the next town. That's John 6, 45. Uh, and so when we, when we read from the beginning of the passage that they went down into the sea, uh, in, John, in John's record of this, that they went down to the sea, we, we understand that they're going down to the sea on his command in obedience to him, doing what Jesus had told them to do. As we've said, this is the first mark of a true disciple of Jesus Christ, as they are those who seek to obey the will of the Lord. This is why we examine one of the Ten Commandments every Lord's Day in the corporate worship service, so that you would understand what it is that the the Word of God requires of you what it is that God's law requires of you. It's 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 yes, it's so that we would know that we're guilty and that we need to confess our sins and turn to him for grace. That's true. That's a valid use of the law. But it's also so that we would pursue to, to live up to that standard, that we would endeavor to do so. And this is why uh, this summer I, I'm leaning very heavily to doing uh, a series on the Ten Commandments again. We did it two years ago. I think it's good to do once or twice with you guys walking through the larger catechism and understanding what the command of the Lord is so that we might better seek to obey it. They are in this boat in obedience to the Lord. That's the point for right now. They're there in obedience. And what do they wind up in because of their obedience? A great storm. A great trial. It's true that... As a general rule, life will go better for you if you live it according to the way God commands. That's true as a general rule. But it is also true that we are not promised perfect, easy, smooth sailing. Um, Verse 18 tells us the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Now, we don't want to just brush past that because what was the profession of these men who were on the sea? What did they do for a living? How'd they make their money, Jack? They were uh, sailors. They were sailors. They were fishermen. This is what they did. Okay. So when when the sea is rough for them, it's rough, right? It, it, it it's rough for them. It's not like you know you and I that, or I should say me. Some of you know very well your way around a boat. Um, I'm thinking of one in particular. Uh, yeah, everyone look at Cole. <laughs> <laughs> but nonetheless. Uh, it's not it, it's rough for these who do this uh, as a profession. It's rough by professional standards. It's a tough storm and they're in it because they obeyed Jesus. And it seems then that this roughness in this roughness Jesus is nowhere to be found. That's the, the impression you might get from this passage. In fact, one commentator refers to Jesus in this passage as the great absent one for now the disciples are on their own. And there are times, even in the life of a Christian, that despite what we know in our minds, our hearts will feel like the Lord is not with us. You you, you will know better in your mind, but your your heart will still feel that way. And, And I want to say that That's not unusual. It's not necessarily correct, right? We want to have our minds transformed and and renewed, and we want to have that govern the way that we feel. But it is not unusual. There, there's often. I I know a man who, who who's told me that ever since he was converted, he has never once doubted the Lord's goodness and presence with him, and and praise God for that. And that's wonderful. And I want that for all of you. But I want you to know that that's not the standard by which we are to judge ourselves. Um, oftentimes Christians will, will say, well, if I'm doubting, that means I'm not believing. And yes, we want to overcome the doubt, but we don't want to say that that makes me no longer a Christian. It is, it is normal to feel that way. And we learn in Mark's gospel, though, that, that despite their perception, despite the way it may have felt for them, that that was not, in fact, the case. Jesus had not abandoned them. Would somebody please flip back to Mark chapter 6? And read for us verses 46 and 48. Mark 6, 46 and 48. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was the one on the land. Is that also 48? Oh, sorry. And he saw that they were making headway headway, painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. Thank you very much, Reese. So we see there's there's two things that the disciples in the boat, in the trial, don't see. And that we likewise in our trials often don't see, but nonetheless are true. As Reese just read in Mark six, we learn that Jesus was watching them, he saw of them in their struggle. And what else did Reese read that he was doing? He's praying for them. He's watching over them and he is praying for them. And this is what he does for all of us. He watches us and he prays for us. And there's often an experience of great comfort that a Christian has when someone that they look up to, someone that they trust, someone that they respect, uh, sees their struggle and lets, lets you know that they're praying for you. Um, that, that often means a lot. I remember one time, it may have been about a year ago or so now, uh, I was scheduled to preach the evening service and I uh, walked into the sanctuary with my manuscript and I thought it was wretched. And uh, it was just not enough, and it wasn't good. And it was very unusual. Uh, Dr. Phillips walked past me. That's not unusual. He goes and sits down, and he's there to worship. But he stopped, and he asked if he could pray with me. And he did pray, and he prayed that, that the Lord would bless my ministry that night, and that he would bless the sermon, that the people would be edified. And, and instantly, kind of my anxiety went away. He didn't slip in the prayer, and by the way, Jeff, the proper outline for the passage is ABC, right? He didn't He didn't give some kind of hermeneutical hint to what I was supposed to do. No, he prayed that the Lord would be with me and that he would bless me. And I went into the pulpit, having not changed my manuscript a bit, and it went well. And it's because of the, the comfort and the confidence that I got from knowing that someone that I respect, someone that I looked up to, was praying for me, and I'm sure... You all have that same kind of experience in your background with your parents, with, with me, with other Sunday school teachers. When, when, when spiritual mentors and leaders pray for you, it, it is a source of great encouragement. And so I want to say this morning to you all is how much more encouragement ought it to be to know that in your trials, in your hardships, the Lord Jesus himself is watching and he is praying. The Bible teaches this over and over again. Romans 8.34, Hebrews 7.25 says that he has ascended to the Father's right hand and his ministry right now is praying for you. He, He ever lives to intercede for those who draw near to God through him. The great Scottish Presbyterian Robert Murray McShane once wrote, If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet, The distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. We know so because the Bible tells us. And he wrote that not because it makes him feel better, but because that's what the Bible says. And so I ask, what would it change about our own anxieties, our own struggles and going through trials and going through storms of life, if we knew in the middle of it that our Lord was not only watching, but praying, that we had not been abandoned, because you are never alone. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is watching and he is praying. And so that's the, the second feature of a true disciple is we have a, a a consistent faithfulness, not because of ourselves, but because of our faithful Savior who watches over us. And then the last thing that we're going to look at this morning is our complete dependence on the Lord. And we'll see this in in verse 19 because Jesus uh, yes he watches and yes he prays and that's wonderful and I hope that's a great source of comfort to you but he doesn't just do that he also comes to them 19 and when they had rode about three or four miles notice again that's the consistent faithfulness the consistent endeavoring three or four miles uh, is you know we, we we drive everywhere now so that goes by very quickly not not so. Uh, There's con- consistent labor and effort put forth on their part be- the, because they're sustained by his prayers. But after they had done this for three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And the Lord comes to his disciples at the right time. And what he speaks to them is so instructive. Uh, and, and frankly, I, I, don't, I don't love... Um, The way pretty much every English Bible renders this, I understand why they do, because it reads a lot better than what it actually says. But uh, it says, it is I, right? Do not be afraid. Fair enough. Um, The Greek is ego, I, me. Ego is a first-person singular pronoun, right? So, I. Very good. I, me, is a first-person singular of the verb To be. What would you render that as? I am. am. That's what he said. He gets into the boat and he says, I am. Do not be afraid. I am. I am. That is the name that the Lord himself gives to Moses in the burning bush. I am. Am. you tell them that I am sent me to you because when Jesus comes to his disciples he is coming as the one who has eternally been he is coming to the one who has he is coming to them as the one who has made all things and controls and governs all things so the very storm that they were afraid of is in his hands he comes to them saying I am. Again, Ritterboss explains, by saying this, Jesus also describes his coming and appearance as a divine epiphany. And this occurs in a context, and that is where the emphasis lies in this self-revelation. Another commentator adds, just as the darkest sky best displays the glory of the stars, Jesus chooses the sorest trials to unveil his divine majesty to our eyes. The point is then that when we remember that Christ is with us, we can endure whatever trial it is that we're going through because we know that in him we have all that we need. He is, I am. He is the one who is all sufficient. And the disciples then gladly receive him into the boat and immediately the boat Is it the land to which they were going? And the point is this. There's several points, several things to consider and reflect on from that. One is um, the storm and the difficulty of the night actually made the disciples realize the truth. What do I mean by that? I mean, is it not the case that when we get anxious... The reason we're anxious is because we feel like things are out of our control. I feel like I can't control this. I can't manage this. I don't know what I'm going to do about this. The truth is that five minutes before you were anxious, you weren't in control of that either. You couldn't sustain or manage that either. So, so the, the trial, the storm, actually reveals the truth of the situation that they had been veiled to before. The the illusion is that you were ever in control. But the comfort in our anxiety is not that God gives you control over the situation. It's that the God who is in control of the situation comes to you. He comes to you and he is with you. And and sometimes that means that that in that moment of comfort, uh, uh, the the trial evaporates. That, That does happen. That has happened. But sometimes it means that we can have comfort and peace in the trial because he is with us. Um, you know My kids um, hate thunderstorms. It scares them to death. My, my son especially doesn't like fireworks, which uh, makes every Fourth of July party at Jack's house very um, interesting. But he gets through it. Why? Not because the fireworks stop. and amen, I love the fireworks. <laughs> But because he's able to snuggle up with me, and I hold him closely, and he gets through it. Why? Because he's with the one that he trusts to protect him. In the same way, Jesus comes to us in the trial and protects us and gives us that comfort that we need. And then the last thing to note here (coughs) is in verse 21, "Then Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Whatever the, the, the duration of the trial that, that you're in may be, the anxiety that we often feel about it is it's going to wreck my plan. It's going to change where I thought things were going to end up. It's going to change what I intended for myself. Well, when the Lord comes to us in the trial, he gets us to where he had told us to go, where he intends for us to be, and you will not be thwarted from his good and perfect and right plan. And whatever that may be for you is what it will be. But the the point is that it will be as it shall be. Immediately, the boat was at the land to which they were going. Let's pray. God in heaven, we give thanks to you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for how he watches over us in our hardships. We thank you that he prays for us and intercedes intercedes for us with you. And we thank you, Lord, that he comes to us and he ministers to us in our time of need. And I pray for these, my young friends, some of whom are undoubtedly going through trials and storms and and things like we read of in our passage today. And I pray, Lord, that they would draw comfort from the fact that their Savior has not left them, has not abandoned them, but that he watches, that he prays, that he comes to us. And he comes to us not just as a man, not just as a good teacher, not just as A good guide to life but he comes to us as the one who is the great i am who who is the the word of your power by which all things were made and therefore he sustains and controls all things and so when he says i am with you we know that we are with the one who can protect us and watch over us lord we pray i I pray for my young friends that they would know that comfort this day and all the days of their life in christ's name amen